You're listening to a Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. The sixth annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland interdisciplinary conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2016. The conference was generously supported by an NUI Galway President's Award for Research Excellence to Professor Stephen Ellis, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Discipline of History at NUI Galway, and the Society for Renaissance Studies. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of the closing plenary address, which was given by Professor Andrew Hadfield from the University of Sussex. His paper was entitled, Edmund Spencer, The Less Among the Jacobites. Professor Hadfield was introduced by Professor Daniel Carey, director of the Moore Institute at NUI Galway. Thank you, everybody, for being here. It's a pleasure welcoming you. Uh, it's been a very lively two days, and uh, I want to just congratulate the, the organizers for putting together a remarkable sixth installment of Tudor and Stuart Ireland. So, Evan Burke, Bernard McShane, Carla Lessing, and Jeffrey Cox. So, maybe we can give them a bit of applause. Richly deserved, and thank you very much for bringing the event to Galway and to the Moore Institute. It's my pleasure to introduce Andrew Hadfield, who uh, people will be familiar with from many of his publications. And I was thinking maybe of a kind of future time, and you know, two, three hundred years, in which people are looking back at the career of a certain A.H., known only by those initials, occasionally A.H.F.B.A., and no one's quite sure what the F.B.A. part of it is or might add to the equation, but there's so many books associated with A.H., they're not sure if it's the same individual. And they have a number to pick from. So it's Edmund Spencer, A Life, Shakespeare and Republicanism, Shakespeare, Spencer, and the Matter of Britain, Shakespeare and Renaissance Politics. There's also an A.H. editor of uh, the Norton Shakespeare, the Oxford Handbook of English Prose, 1500-1640, Renaissance Studies editor for uh, a five-year period. Religions of the Book, Literature and Popular Culture and Modern England. So I think it is conclusive that it's not the same person. There's more than one AH. So uh, that we will offer to a future time. We're fortunate to be here and now in the present. Looking forward to Andrew speaking. I did want to say one or two things about his current work. He's involved in the edition of Thomas Nash. I don't know which Nash text you're editing. Are well, I'm doing Lenten stuff and probably have with you to Saffron Walden, which, is, uh, which all of you will be familiar with. Of course. Excellent. Excellent. And uh, he's also working on a book on lying. So whether that compromises his uh, talk right from the start, I'm not sure. But this is part of a letters project, I think, that yes, right. Andrew is also working on. So thank you very much, Andrew, for, for being here again in Galway. Well, thank you, Dan. I'll, I'll aim to talk for about uh, 40, 45 minutes. But uh, this, is, this is part of, this is, it's all new for me. So um, I'm, if, if I get some questions about, about the 18th century that I, that I can't possibly answer, what I'll do is I'll blame my co-writer, who's actually... Um, written some of this because it's from an introduction to a book so I'll say, if people ask me questions I can't answer I'll say, well Duncan made me say that because <laughs> my, my co-editor is Duncan Fraser and this is largely from, from an introduction to a book coming out called Gentry Life in 18th Century Ireland which is the letters of uh, Edmund Spencer who I'll, I'll explain about in this, in this lecture As is well known to any student of the Jacobite Rebellion the 45, Bonnie Prince Charlie was less than impressed with his Welsh supporters In the aftermath of the rebellion, the young pretender was asked how he would support his defeated followers in Wales, and he replied that he would do the same for them as they had done for him, 
toast them from over the water. (laughs) Welsh Jacobites were thought to be much better at celebrating their king at secret meetings, much less successful in actually getting out there and supporting his cause when it really mattered. John Buchan's conservative Jacobite unionist novel, Midwinter, 1923, represents a society of old Englishmen, the real England, hostile to the foreign Hanoverians and loyal to the good old cause, thwarted by the failure of the Western uprising. The hero, the plucky Alistair MacLean, not the same one who wrote Where Eagles Dare, (laughs) reflects gloomily on what might have been. All was over now, for a rebellion on the defensive was a rebellion lost, with London at their mercy, with Cumberland and the Whig Dukes virtually in flight, and a dumb England careless which master was hers, they had turned their back on victory and gone northward to chaos and defeat, and all because of their doubt of support, which was even then waiting in the West for their summons. Here, defeat is not blamed on the feeble Welsh Jacobites, who were usually seen as all mouth and no trousers, but evil spying Hanoverians, insidiously undermining the proper legacy of the good old cause. Dr Johnson appears in the novel as the Jacobite sympathising tutor of the lovely Claudia, unworthily married to a weaselly Hanoverian rather than the deserving Alistair who adores her, and his famous line, patriotism is the last refuge of a scoundrel, is used to admonish the supporters of George II who are insincere and self-interested, unlike the Jacobites. Now consider this letter, written on the 22nd of February. Let's see if I can get it up. Here we are. 22nd of February, 1744, by Lord Barrymore to Francis Price. And I'll read it, then I'll explain it. Dear Price, this covers the you sent me, which I send to Maurice Mathers to forward to you in a, or two, there's a, these are damages in the manuscript, or two, I will write to the Colonel my thoughts on it and advise him to make a fair offer for your interest in it, for he cannot set it aside and must pay whatever the king's rent is, for you have nothing to do with that. The continuance of the bad weather and the impossibility for me to take any exercise almost destroys me. Our friends that went to petition Parliament, as Old Grove used to phrase it, had much better have been quiet at home when matters are dry. Perhaps it may rub out all our services. Attend Mrs Price, you and my godson. I expect Dick soon he has a promise of a ship that is as hereafter maybe. I long to see you. I am, dear Dr. Yours sincerely, Barrymore. It's rather like if you watch one of those sort of uh, films about um, the mafia made in the 1970s, there's always someone who says, Luigi, the shirts are here, they're 80% cotton. You know, and it's that... It's that um, so this is, this is the kind of uh, way that uh, Barrymore operates. So the letter was written, interestingly enough, the day before Barrymore was imprisoned for treason. So he gets picked up the next day after this letter. Barrymore is clearly not referring to the weather when he complains about being unable to get outside and exercise. I think that's pretty clear. The comment about Old Grove uh, refers to the printer and journalist Henry Crossgrove, 1683-1744, a well-known Jacobite who was constantly in trouble for his attacks on the Hanoverian establishment, delivered from his base in Norwich. Grove frequently complained that what he regarded as his legitimate criticism of Parliament was taken for treason, which may be that reference to petitioning. Petitioning may not quite mean petitioning here. Barrymore's note that Dick has promise of a ship presumably means that his son Richard has procured a vessel to help with the invasion being planned by Charles Stuart, but no record of this activity survives. 
Bearing Moore's letter is, I think, really easy to decode, and its message to stay indoors and hope for the best rather than rising in open rebellion would have been obvious to anyone reading it, which we should assume the authorities did, given the diligence with which they intercepted letters by plotters such as Barrymore. The judgment of Barrymore's OMD um, biographer is hard to dispute, and this is what he says. So ill-concealed were his movements and correspondence during the years prior to the 45 that the government rightly judged that a public humiliation of the pretender's general would be of more value to the Hanoverian cause than another show trial. In other words, Barrymore was so inept that he had little chance of leading a successful Jacobite rebellion, a fact which sheds further light on the failure of, of, the, of the Western uprising. It's essentially the same sort of defence of, um, of, of, of Barrymore as you got it, if, if uh, those of you who are old enough might remember the trial of the um, comedian Ken Dodd for tax offences, where, where um, his, his, his lawyer successfully defended him on the grounds that Ken Dodd was unable to understand any tax forms, which uh, you know, was a sort of pyrrhic victory, really. <laughs> So Barrymore was at the apex of one of the most enthusiastic circles of Jacobite activity in Wales, in the Wrexham area stretching towards the Shropshire borders and up to the Liverpool area. So here's the, here's the kind of area. It's to the, to the um, west, uh, east of Wrexham is, is, is this area. And you can see it goes up to Ellesmere Port, and that's the sort of area where there's a lot of Jacobites. Um, the networks stretch into England, and as I will explain in a minute as this concerns the real subject of my talk, Edmund Spencer, 1711 to about 1790, the great-great-grandson of Edmund Spencer, the poet, over to Ireland as well. The Pulliston papers preserved in the National Library of Wales enable us to piece together a picture of a powerful Jacobite network. After Barrymore, the second most significant figure in this circle is Sir Watkin Williams Wynne, another close ally of Lord Barrymore and a noted Jacobite whose sympathies were well known. Here's a picture of Sir uh, William Wynne. His family was celebrated enough for his widow and son to be painted by Sir Joshua Reynolds, um, showing off just how much land they've owned in this sort of charming painting. He's going, look, this is Wales, I own it, really. Um, Sir Watkin appears, appears frequently throughout the Pulliston papers and was a leading figure in the cycle of the White Rose, which will come up later on. A Welsh Jacobite society, usually referred to as the Cycle Club, like Lord Barrymore, Sir Watkin had his sympathies and commitment to the Stuart cause sounded out by the French in the early 1740s, and his support played a part in persuading Charles Stuart to launch the 45 invasion. He appears in um, John Buchan's novel uh, Midwinter as a, as, as, a, as a player. When the young pretender land, landed the following year, Sir Watkin and Lord Barrymore promised support but the prince had already turned back from Derby by the time they did so, the further south that his army reached, and any chance of its success was over. So Watkin continued his intrigues, Lord Barrymore was less able to because he's in prison, but died from a fall from his horse in September 1749. So that's the kind of, they're at the apex of this um, Jacobite circle that is in kind of North Wales, parts of England, and Ireland as well, um, which is where uh, Spencer will come in, um, our to sort of preempt what I'm going to say a bit, um, Price, Francis Price, who the letter from, who's written to here, dear Doctor Francis Price, is the person who the correspondence is between Edmund Spencer, the descendant of uh, the poet. Other figures in this Jacobite circle warrant some mention, so I'll, I'll, I'll go through those very quickly, as they show how strong the links were, familial, friendly, and political, between the Welsh and Irish members of the circle. 
In his letters, Edmund Spencer refers to Jack Coppinger, who he encounters on the sea, vo- sea crossing. Coppinger was another friend and ally of Lord Barrymore, who leased Barry's Court Castle in Ca- um, Carrigtwart Hill, County Cork. A whole volume of the Pulliston Papers contains letters from Thomas Kingsbury, a lawyer who looked after Price's affairs in Wales and Ireland, and who also had dealings with Lord Barrymore. However, we do not get much of an impression of Kingsbury's character from his largely practical correspondence. Another volume contains numerous letters from William Paird, who lived at Castle Lyons in Ireland, perhaps acting for Lord Barrymore as a seneschal of one of his estates in Ireland. He was an uncle of Spencer, who took an active interest in his young relation's welfare, sometimes interceding on his behalf with Price and others, at least once reporting to Price on the young man's less happy episodes. Spencer's always getting himself into debt, which I'll explain in a minute. I'm sure you're getting the picture. An important network of people, the most significant of whom Lord Barrymore and Sir William Watkins Wynne were the major Welsh Jacobites of the period, existed in mid to north Wales and south-west Ireland. Among the most extensive correspondences surviving in all these papers is that between Edmund Spencer and one of the more significant members of the circle, Francis Price. There's no picture of Price, but that's one of the letters in the collection that's the edition that we're, we're, we're kind of producing. Here's a sample letter. We have only Spencer's letters. We don't have the Price letter surviving. Most of the letters were written to Francis Price, and after Price's death in 1749, the correspondence continued with his widow Alice and later their son Richard. Francis Price was born in Ballyhooley in the county of Cork and Kingdom of Ireland. This is from his tombstone. Uh, uh, June the 4th, 1696, less than two miles from where Spencer grew up. So the two are connected uh, very, very closely. At this time, the correspondence started, though by this time Price was living in Overton near Wrexham, North Wales, where he was a gentleman of some considerable standing. He had land in Birkenhead and Liverpool, where he possibly also had financial interests in businesses such as shipping. The letters in the Pauliston archives number 117, along with some additional associated papers, and they were written between February 1732 and June 1762. However, the last document in the archive, an account sheet that goes up to November 1774, would would have been sent to the Prices in that year or early 1775, so we can be fairly certain that some correspondence between Spencer and the Price family continued for another 14 years after the last ones in the collection. There are clearly other lacunae in the surviving correspondence, but on the whole, the archive provides very considerable coverage of Edmund Spencer's communication with this family, across three decades of the mid-18th century. Spencer's correspondence with the Prices is of interest because it gives us a detailed account of the life and interests of a member, a struggling member, of the Anglo-Irish provincial gentry living in Ireland, as well as as telling the story of an epistolatory relationship that lasted for 30 years. Such, Such collections are not common, as most letter collections preserved in the archives from the period were written by people of much higher social status. Unfortunately, the letters from Price to Spencer, as I've mentioned, have not survived, so we have a somewhat one-sided understanding of their relationship, being only able to read the communications of the rather less exalted Spencer to his social superior. So a bit about Spencer then. Spencer's life was a constant struggle to maintain his estates and make ends meet, something that comes out time and time again in the, in, in the letters. He's always trying to get somebody within this Jacobite social circle to kind of fix him up. Although how Jacobite the circle is is, 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 is another question. Clearly the people at the top are. 
uh, and, and other people belong to the cycle club. But that's one of the that's one of the intriguing things about 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 this correspondence, really, as to whether whether it does betray that much uh, uh, th- those those connections in the way that you might want them to. And he, uh, Spencer was very dependent on the circle to which he belonged, and why his letters provide such a revealing insight into the nature of gentry life in 18th century Ireland. The family fortune was established by his great-great-grandfather, who acquired substantial land and property in Ireland. The most significant of Spencer's acquisitions were in County Cork, and they included, as I'm sure you all know, Kilcolman and the Castle of Rennie, along with its surrounding lands, which he purchased for Peregrine, his younger son. Peregrine passed Rennie to his eldest son, Hugolin, who in 1694 had them confiscated after he was declared a traitor for his support of James II in the Williamite Wars. The estate was then transferred to his cousin William, whose assistance had enabled King William to win the Battle of Orgrim and so defeat James, and whilst he was still alive, he gave them to his son Nathaniel. I'm sure you're getting the picture of how complicated the family inheritance is, which is one of the things that poor old Spencer, kind of, uh, poor old R. Spencer, ends up with. Unfortunately for William and, Hugh- and Nathaniel, Hugolin had mortgaged Rennie to a son-in-law, Pierce Power, for £300, that sum to be raised to £500 if Hugolin died without male issue, which from William and Nathaniel's point of view, he rather inconveniently did. <laughs> In response, the father and son mortgaged Kill Coleman, which William, as the son of Sylvanus, had also inherited, and remortgaged Rennie, leaving Nathaniel so heavily indebted on his father's death that he had to sell off a large part of these estates. This is the theme of poor old Spencer's life. All these est- he's got this access to wealth which disappears before his eyes. Nathaniel then died whilst his son, Edmund, was still a minor, leaving trustees to look after the inheritance. And when Edmund, little Edmund the Less, came of age, he was left little of the substantial properties in Ireland originally acquired by his famous ancestor. Moreover, Rennie was subject to a complicated lawsuit still being pursued by the descendants of Piers Power. If you remember him, who's kind of uh, that borrowed some money off earlier. And to make things even worse, one of the trustees, a lawyer named Busteed, had, methodologi- had method- methodically embezzled the income from Rennie. Edmund Spencer arrived at the age of 21 to find his financial affairs in tatters. A sorry state of affairs as retaining one's position in, uh, in the Irish ruling class depended on not selling one's land to meet interim financial difficulties. So undoubtedly his situation was, uh, was, was not unusual, but, but kind of uh, provides an insight into that kind, of, um, that kind of struggle. And I'll say a bit more about that in a, in, in, in a minute. Um, so the, the, Spencer is still in Ireland, and he's writing to Francis Price. As I say, Francis Price was born um, in, in Ireland, but ends up uh, and, has, and has an, probably has an Irish mother. Um, and there's some kind of relationship between Spencer and Price, where, um, but it's not, it's not clear what it is. We haven't been able to work out what it is from looking at, uh, looking at things. But they may, have started up, they may have started out on kind of more or less the same level, but basically Spencer goes down the social scale and Price goes up, as is very obvious, because Price makes a very good marriage to um, Alice Lloyd, uh, a very wealthy widow, uh, and through his marriage, he obtained part of the Birkenhead Priory estate, um, but he also um, becomes connected to a series of Liverpool merchants by the name of Cleveland. So Price kind of goes up the social scale. He's the one who's corresponding with Lord Barrymore, as uh, you know, who's, who's, who's right at the top of, the, of, of, of this kind of social circle. Poor old Spencer has had all these lands wrecked, and so in, in the correspondence, there's very much 
um, a, a, a disjunction between, between the two where Spencer has kind of gone down and price has gone up. Uh, and, and price is successful enough in 1738-7-8, he becomes uh, sheriff of Flintshire. So clearly, Francis Price was much more successful than Spencer, and that's something that comes out in the letters, and I'll say a bit about that uh, uh, in a minute, both economically and socially. He was a friend of the Earl of Barrymore and Sir William Watkins Wynne. Uh, you know, and these are serious, serious people with a lot of dosh. Uh, making him, therefore, well-placed to, to lobby influential people who could help his humbler relative in the search for an alternative source of income, whether through speculative ventures such as his proposal to publish the complete works of his great-great-grandfather by a commission in the army or a salaried position in the civil administration in Dublin. I'll say a bit about the attempt to publish his, um, his great-great-grandfather's works, because that's how I got into looking at this collection. But in a way, it became one of the least interesting things about it. All the other sort of things about his life became, became very interesting, because one of the things I'm pretty certain about is that, that, that um, Spencer doesn't know that much about Spencer. He claims that he does, but, uh, but I th and, and one of his ventures to publish the works of Spencer is, is, is not... Is not sort of something that I think is based on any particular insight. And he, he does mention Jonathan Swift and he does mention Orrery in his correspondence. And there may, of course, be lost correspondence, but he doesn't give you the sense of having a great uh, literary interest, even though he's, he has quite a nice turn of phrase and he's clearly not un, uneducated. Um, and he's always trying... Uh, um, I'm not saying so much about this, but one of the things he does that is a theme in the letters is, are his attempts to, to gain money. He tries to go into the army, he tries to... Uh, he's always lobbying people in Dublin and spending all his money hanging around in Dublin trying to sort of uh, latch on to some patronage. And he, used, and he lobbies Price and he lobbies various other people to try and get him a position. In the end, I think he gets a job, he gets a job as, a, as a hearth tax collector and he gets a number of those kind of things that, people, that, that kind of middle-class people have in, in, uh, in, throughout the British Isles, I suppose, where, where, where you have a series of kind of minor administrative positions that probably in the end work out to quite a reasonable income. So he, but he doesn't die in, in, in particularly affluent circumstances. He's never that successful, really. But one of the questions we might ask, there's a couple of questions that I think I'll, I'll go through in terms of thinking about this archive. One is the, is, is the affiliation suspense, and the other thing is perhaps what it tells us about, about the nature of the correspondence. One of the questions we might ask is whether his involvement in this circle suggests that Spencer was a Jacobite sympathiser. If so... Was he changing sides and going against the colonial legacy of his great-great-grandfather, who wrote the most notorious tract on Ireland? Families changed over time, and English writers noted, a number of, noted over a number of generations that if Ireland was not made English, then the English would become more Irish than the Irish. It's a common complaint. Well, were the signs already there in Edmund Spencer, the poet, that things were not quite what they've seen? After all, his son Sylvanus married into the Nagel family, and Peregrine's son, Hugolin, supported James II. Hardly suggestion that they were managed, if they, if, if they even tried to, they preserved a pristine sort of uh, Protestant identity. But it's very hard to tell. Um, the problem is people tend to keep problematic religious affiliations well covered up, and what you get in this period is um, it's very obvious, as it is from that Barrymore letter, that, that letters are intercepted and read and you had to be very careful what you said, particularly as you were using certain people's franking systems and if you were using the franking... Uh, Spencer uses the franking system of Sir William Watkins Wynne uh, where he's got a whole load of envelopes from, from uh, Sir Watkin, probably via Francis Price, which means he doesn't have to pay for his correspondence but probably most of it is intercepted because obviously Sir, William, Sir, Sir Watkins is a pretty notorious Jacobite. 
The evidence in the letters of Spencer's political affiliations is unsurprisingly tantalising and elusive. On December the 6th, 1743, he writes to Price, I congratulate you on the addition of so many worthy new members to your cycle. This confirms quite definitely where Price's political sympathies lay, as the cycle was a Jacobite club, as I've already mentioned. But do the approbatory congratulate and worthy new members indicate Spencer's concordance with his correspondent? Who knows? Spencer then rather cryptically continues, We have our own clubs here too, but such clubs. I have not the honour of being a member to any of them. Unfortunate. The grandest is our Dettingen Club, which has a great many members, as it is the newest, and by their excesses in drinking will, I believe, be of short duration. This is kind of this is, this is also very very typical of some of uh, Spencer's correspondence. That kind of um, I have not the honour of being a member of one of them. He's always kind of doing this. this um, poor poor me, I don't quite cut the mustard, you know. But the, the, the Dettingham was named after the battle in which the French were defeated by an Allied force under George II earlier in 1743. So it clearly must have been a Hanoverian club of some nature. Does that unfortunate carry a suggestion that he would like to join, but laments that his Jacobitism prevents him, or even that because of those sympathies, he feels a need to try to camouflage them through membership of such a club? And if that is the case, is the unfortunate ironic carrying along with the um, prediction that the heavy drinking will lead to the club's early demise, a hint of schadenfreude? Or has this nothing to do with political leanings at all? but simply signifies that his meagre resources excluded him from the swells gathered in the Dettingham Club. That is, do you want to join these networks because you have a sympathy with them, or do you want to join them because they're going to get you on? Uh, it's, it's, it's hard to tell, but it's probably more likely the latter. Moreover, if he were a Jacobite, surely he would not be angling for a commission in the Hanoverian army. That would be an ideological step too far, even for a man desperate for a secure salary, which is something he does. One suspects that in the reference to the cycle club, he is simply indicating respect for his relatives' views by politely acknowledging them, then following up with, that, with a humorously conspiratorial and negative commentary on his local Hanoverian club. And you get a sense of how, of how complicated uh, um, affiliations are and how difficult it is to uncover them. A letter he writes to Alice Price in July 1755 is, however, perhaps a different matter. Here he explains that he has been distracted from writing to her on account of a disputed election for Portrive in Mr. Dean's corporation where the court party has seduced some of our voters and tried to force others on us who have no right to vote. They have also returned for themselves, which will make it a king's bench affair where I make not the least doubt of invalidating such a number of their poll as will preserve to us our patriot borough. Now, the phrase, our patriot borough, and the following explanation of the action to overturn the vote would seem to indicate that Spencer is an active member of that group, still in its infancy at this point, point as a formal political party, which desired greater independence for Ireland and reform of the anti-Catholic penal laws. That might provide a bit more evidence there, the idea of the, of the patriot borough. So if he's not a Jacobite, he is hardly a paid, a, the fully paid-up pro-Hanoverian described in the draft letters and notes that Fr Francis Price wrote in preparation for lobbying possible patrons or employers on Spencer's behalf. So if, wherever you look, there's kind of slightly different evidence, as you can see, and that probably tells you what people are trying to do rather than, 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 than an actual uh, conviction. Price presents Spencer as a man very well affected to the present establishment. 
He takes care to mention his constant adherence to the revolution and the Protestant line in the illustrious House of Hanover, and that his grandfather did great service to King William and his army in the battle at the Battle of Acrim by showing them the difficulties, defiles and passes which saved the Protestant army from being destroyed. Is there a hint here of the gentleman protesting too much? Might Price's concentration on Spencer's loyalist credentials be on par with that possibility floated, floated earlier that members of the Dettigan Club would have operated as camouflage? Though here to disguise the somewhat less marginalising political position of being an Irish patriot rather than an outright enemy to the established power. Whatever we make of this isolated declaration of Spencer's personal convictions, it certainly sheds some light on the difficulties he experienced in finding employment. Being a patriot in this temporary 1752 to 6 sense would have well nigh ruled you out of appointment to, appointment to or promotion in the revenue and in most government jobs and impeded your progress in the army. So it's not something you wanted to kind of put around too much, given that's exactly where he's trying to find employment. And yet he still pursued such a post, precisely the sort of difficult negotiation um, that many must have made, been making regarding these complex intersections of the political and the personal in mid-18th century Ireland. Underlying all this, of course, is perhaps the most important thing, a simple, stubborn fact. He had a family to support, and he needed to secure some form of income, factors which undoubtedly compromised his political thinking, or perhaps persuaded him to leave such matters alone. In asking what sort of individual emerges from the letters, perhaps another point, just to give you some idea of what, what's in them, we should start then by thinking about Spencer's familiar style, how he conveys that sense of candour and self-performance required in the familiar letter. That's something you have to think about when you're, when you're looking at correspondence, is how people represent themselves, sort of style they adopt. The three most important characteristics to consider are, according to Kate Telsher, power of invention, the impression of an easy, natural and sincere style, and vivacity or immediacy of voice. There are many moments in these letters where Spencer demonstrates these qualities. For example, he, he jokes to Price. Uh, Price and Spencer like making jokes and have many which bind them together in the letters. Perhaps a sense of Spencer wanting to show how intimate and familiar he is with someone who has become his, uh, his social secure, uh, superior. And they joke about a mutual acquaintance who visits the Prices in Wales, noting the beneficial effects on him of the superior food provided there. Welsh has slipped his skin like, like the serpent and seems young again. I fear the food of Ballyhooley will so ill agree with his constitution after Brinny Priest that the poor fellow will be reduced in a few weeks to his pristine appearance. In his letter of 15th of May, 1744, he concludes that the news that two young men have recently died with a somewhat darkly humorous quip. Young Casabon died last week at his seat at Carrick. He was a very honest young fellow and was lately married to one of Sir John Rogerson's daughters. Another of them was married to Colonel Jefferson's eldest son, who she buried within the year. Dangerous women to attack. This is the kind of, sort of blokey uh, humour that you get in, 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 in the letters. There is at times, though, another side of Spencer revealed, and this is perhaps more important in some ways. Uh, if you think about that, that's, a, that's obviously an attempt uh, in, uh, in, in social terms to kind of assert his... or. Um, Make, him, make himself appear equal to Price, but at, other at times he talks as though they are kind of two male friends. At other times he's much more sort of uh, subordinate, and this is, this is quite interesting as well. Um, so there's times another side of Spencer reveals, still through a, can a certain candour, but perhaps slipping out of that urbane ease that the properly performative familiar later might aim to maintain. 
The very first letter in the collection suggests a somewhat sensitive, possibly personally insecure character, with its hint that there might have been some strain in the relationship between the two correspondents. I should have troubled you long ere this with a letter, but feared it may not be taken as well as I hoped. And we observed a similar tone in a letter written some 12 years later, where he wonders why he's not heard from Price for so long. As I never did anything, even in thought, to deserve your slighting me, I cannot lay anything to my own charge that should occasion this neglect of me, and therefore must impute it to some other cause as yet unknown to me. You can see how desperate he is for sort of Price's goodwill. He returns yet again to this theme in July 1749. After a five-month interval since his last letter from Price, Spencer worries that he is being unfairly neglected. "'Tis so long since I had the satisfaction of a letter from you that I begin to despair of another, and dread that by some unforeseen, at least undesigned, accident I might be unhappy enough to provoke your slighting me, or else, sure, you would before now have favoured me with a line or two to inform me how you and yours are. On this occasion, however, there's a good reason why Price has not informed him how he is. He has, in fact, been dying. Uh, He died on the 27th of July, six weeks after Spencer wrote his letter." But what's interesting is that none of the family in Wales seems to have thought fit to tell Spencer about this state of affairs. So that's another thing. You can get from this correspondence the idea that they're very close, and then his family don't even tell him when he, when he, when he dies. A later, uh, a, a later letter evidences the same neglect of reciprocity on the Welsh side. Robert Price, Francis's uh, son, Francis Price's son, and a young man for whom Spencer clearly had a considerable affection, has married, but they write to tell him of this only after the Irish papers have published the fact. I return thanks for your kind information of Mr Price's intention to alter his condition. Our newspapers inform us that he is married, and I sincerely wish him and you all the joy imaginable on the occasion, as to some years since I had the pleasure of his correspondence. I take the liberty to entreat uh, you all pleased to present him with my congratulations and those of my wife and daughter." Is there a touch of chagrin in this straight formality here, and of reproach in that tis some years since I had the pleasure of his correspondence? On this occasion, if not before, Spencer could be forgiven for thinking that he has been slighted. Perhaps the truth is Spencer was less important to the Price family than they were to him. It's a great shame that we do not have Price's letters to Spencer so that we can see whether Spencer's warm affection for Price and desire to maintain an intimate friendship with him was reciprocated. But is what we are seeing here simply a matter of everyday family dynamics? Certainly Spencer represents himself as a poor relation who has got into debt and needs to be rescued and whose difficult circumstances, whether self-inflicted or not, lead to his continually seeking help from his wealthier, more influential and hence, hence more successful relative. However, a letter of December 1747 suggests that another factor is in play. Here Spencer first reiterates his gratitude to Cousin Price for all his favours, but then expresses uneasiness about his powerlessness in relation to great men. He requests his cousin not to intercede on his behalf with Lord Barrymore concerning a dispute he has with the Powers family, those those who uh, were fighting over about the Rennie property. They have, he says, used me basely, but Barrymore has them greatly at heart. Here the diffidence stems clearly from Spencer's um, acutely felt impotence in these situations. As he, Lord Barrymore, is a great man, I would not choose to deal with him, for should he at any time take it into his head, he would crush me to atoms. So all the way through, there's this kind of painful awareness of social distinctions and how dependent you are on on the people who are your patrons. 
Does this suggest another explanation for his uneasy relationship with Price, that because of his painful awareness of his position of dependence on Price, he recognises all too clearly the imbalance in social status between the two of them? Is Spencer's uncertainty, uh, in other words, more strictly a matter of class, which is why he performs the nature of friendship so often in the correspondence? Is he a relation who the Price is regarded socially inferior, excluded from their close personal affairs, so that writing letters on his part... Uh, is an obligation, but on theirs a favour. Go on to a um, bit about religion before sort of coming to, to some kind of conclusions. There's, um, there's a bit I've, I've cutting out here where Spencer's actually quite... There's a point where Spencer's actually quite sympathetic to people who are dependent upon him. That's something that's quite nice about him. He can seem a bit um, pathetically insecure in the way that, in the way that he deals with, with Price, but he's very, he also shows a side where he's painfully aware that other people have to depend on him, and, he's, and he does intercede for other people. It gives you a sense of um, how, again, that kind of ne- how important those networks and hierarchies are, really. Spencer's letters are also distinctive as much for what they do not say or reveal as for what they do tell us. As with his political views, his letters reveal little about his confessional allegiance. There is not one comment that gives a definite answer to the question, was Spencer a Protestant or a Catholic? Again, remember, these these letters are probably opened. That he was a Protestant is the natural assumption, since were he a Catholic, he would not, under the penal laws prevailing in Ireland at that time, have been able to obtain any employment in the administration, which is what he's trying to do. But that's only part of the story. Many of Edmund Spencer's direct descendants had reverted to Catholicism, including, as already mentioned, Hugolin, the grandson who inherited Rennie. William, the grandson through Maccabeus Childsline and Edmund Spencer's grandfather, seems to have adopted a fairly flexible religious position, having apparently converted from Catholicism to Protestantism in order to, reco- strangely, to recover lands confiscated by Cromwell's administration. William seems to have had no problem with the restoration of the Stuarts, but on the Hanoverian succession, he supported William of Orange. Such facts might suggest that William Spencer was something of a pragmatist. His actions determined by political considerations and the need to um, maintain possession of his property rather than religious conviction. But in that respect, he was in line with most people, I suspect, who were more interested in making a living than actually coming out and declaring their faith. Wealth was acquired through land rather than salaries, so the marriage of the sons and daughters of neighbours was especially important as it enabled families to accumulate more property and secure their future. One suspects that many religious principles and beliefs were sacrificed for such hope of earthly gain, especially in religiously divided Ireland. Spencer has little to say about the religious convictions of other people. One note where the exception, though, is his comment on the death of the vicar of Castle Lyons. This is reported with a subtly sarcastic suggestion that the vicar's charitable behaviour is more in line with Catholic belief concerning good works and salvation rather than the Protestant rejection of that in favour of dependence on God's mercy and grace. Harry Harrison, who has lived like a hermit for many uh, years and still continues to do so, has last week remitted to the Society for Promoting Protestant Schools, £1,000 in a lump, by which charity I believe he expects to pave the way to wipe off his extortions and with which he might be hereafter charged. It would be foolish, of course, to make any more of that than to note Spencer's ability and willingness to make a theologically inflected joke. But what do we make of his comment in the letter of the 12th of March 1760 that our militia is not, uh, is not a raid nor the act yet passed it seems votes of credit are of greater consequence than arming the Protestants to defend themselves. 
Does that rather detached phrase suggesting suggest that the Protestants are a group are the group that the writer does not feel a part of, and that their need to defend themselves is not his need? It's unfortunately very hard to tell, and those are really the only kind of um, clues you get about his religious affiliations. So there's no decisive evidence here, only a sense of veiled disaffection towards the established church, one that does not hint at overtly opposed views, but rather resigned dissatisfaction. Perhaps Spencer, if not a secret Catholic, had sympathy for the Catholics, and seeing work in the administration under the penal laws, felt he had to be particularly cautious when using a postal system that was, as Paul Langford writes, notoriously open to inspection for reasons of state. These reasons including party politics as well as national security. James Howe notes that during this period, the post office quickly earned itself a malign character and the betrayal of trust and interception of letters by it um, came almost to be seen as a given, letters being systematically subject to stops and checks by anonymous officials employed for just that purpose. So I'll conclude... Perhaps, I hope I've given you some sense of, 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 uh, of Spencer, but perhaps in the end what, what's notable is that economic circumstances dictate how Edmund the Less lived. He spent a large part of his life trying to sort out his estates, and in the end he had to sell his beloved Rennie Castle, which was demolished in the 19th century. There's nothing left of it. There's not even a picture as far as I, I, I can work out, and I spent quite a long time using old ordnance survey maps trying to find it, uh, uh, um, you know, but, uh, to no avail. One of his money-making schemes was to sell a new edition of his great-great-grandfather's poetry. And here it is. Here's the, here's the, um, here's the sort of uh, mock-up of the, of the edition that he was going to, to produce. And it's interesting here where, where it's got a new glossary explaining the old and obscure words, a more exact account of his life by his great-grandson, should be great-great-grandson, Edmund Spencer. So, um, unfortunately, there's no evidence in the, in the correspondence to suggest that he does have any secret evidence about Spencer. I think it's just his, his, his trading on his kind of relationship to, to make that case. Um, the edition was scrapped, and this is rather sad, in the wake of the 45. As Spencer commented rather sadly, I have not received as many subscriptions as bore my expenses. And the troubles now in Scotland will be a great damp, as people must think of other things than books. So that's kind of the end of that edition. And then, of course, then there is there is a, a major edition of uh, Spencer's works appears in 1749, which I think is the other thing that kind of does for it. And there's no mention of it in the correspondence. Again, people might have had um, other things on their mind than books, but what we should note about um, Edmund Spencer the less is that he did leave a nice legacy of letters, which tell us much about the complicated lives that the middling sort caught between all sorts of conflicting forces, lived. Especially when they were English in Ireland, had to rely on a Welsh patronage network which largely supported a Scottish cause, and so were at odds with the Crown. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.